In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. We have a special guest this morning, and I'll let you guess what that means uh, when we get to the announcement time. Since we left Naomi and Ruth last week, a lot has happened in the story. At the end of chapter 1, they make it to Bethlehem just in time for the start of the barley harvest. Now, there are two parts of the laws of Moses that are in the work, kind of in the background here. The first is that in Leviticus, God had commanded that when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. So Ruth goes out and begins to pick up the grains left behind those reaping in the fields. The second part is found in Deuteronomy 25, and there's a passage in Leviticus that plays into this too. There it says that if a husband dies with no heirs, his brother must marry his wife, and the first child of that marriage becomes the heir of the dead brother. And if there wasn't a brother available, there's all of this rigmarole, but Generally speaking, that duty would fall to a near male relative, a, a kinsman redeemer, we sometimes call it. We see as we continue on in chapter 2 that Ruth meets Boaz, and Boaz is a man of means, but he's also related to Naomi's husband. Boaz asks, the woman, asks his foreman who this woman is. The foreman tells him that she came from Moab with Ruth, with Naomi rather. So he gives Ruth protection. He asks her to stay in his fields and ordered his field hands not to bother her, and that she should also hang out with the women from his family. Naomi considers this a huge blessing that Boaz would look out for them, and Boaz thinks Ruth is a good person for taking care of Naomi. This continues over the two months of the barley and the wheat harvests. And with the harvest winding down, Naomi sees God's hand in the situation. She gives Ruth a, chain, a plan, change into more appropriate clothing, it's likely at this point that Ruth was still wearing her mourning outfits. Find Boaz on the threshing floor, and after he's eaten and drank and goes to sleep, go lay, lay beside him, tell him who you are and that you, want to mar- and that you want him to marry you. So Ruth does that. Boaz wakes up, finds Ruth. Ruth explains the situation to him and asks him to do what's right. Now, let's not romanticize this too much. Boaz is an older man, and Ruth is a relatively young lady. Okay, This is not true love. This is what she needs to do to survive. And we're going to stay the heck out of all the euphemisms going on here in the Hebrew text. That's not for this morning. But Boaz says, okay, I'll do this, but there's someone a little closer in relation to Naomi's husband than I am. We'll have to see what he wants to do, because... He should be the one that does this. He's got to refuse first. Then he tells her to leave secretly so that no one knows she's been there with him. He doesn't want the rumors to start. And he sends her back to Naomi with a bunch of barley. Listen, the two women here are making sure that Boaz does the right thing. There's no indication that Boaz, after finding out she came back with Naomi, ever asks her, so what's your relationship with Naomi? He's not curious at all, knowing that Naomi left with, his two, with, with her two sons. The women here are making him do what's right. That next morning, Boaz goes out to the gates of Bethlehem with the ten elders of the city. 
and waits until this cousin appears. And and he says, listen, cousin, Naomi's wanting to sell her late husband's property. And as the closest relative, you're the first one who gets a chance to buy it. And this cousin says, okay, I'm always looking for a little bit more land. That sounds like a good deal. And then Boaz says, now listen, if you don't buy this property, I'm going to, but, but, you know, you should know that if you buy it, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with the property. And this cousin looks at Boaz and says, I can't do it. It might endanger the status of my own estate. I guess you have to do it. I'm not going to be able to. Boaz and Ruth get married, and the baby is named Obed. He becomes, as the Bible tells us, the father of Jesse, the father of David. God moves in Naomi and Ruth's story like he does in most of ours. Not as a divine physical presence talking from a burning bush. Not as a booming voice from the heavens. Not sending angels to tell us what to do next. But as the one about whom we know, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. He's quietly working in our lives sometimes showing what we should do next through the wisdom and counsel of a trusted relative or a friend. In last Sunday's gospel, gospel, we heard that the most important commandment is that the Lord is one and that we should worship God with all our heart, soul, being, and strength, our everything, and that we must love our neighbor as ourselves. And between that encounter with the scribe and this morning's reading, we have a couple of verses where Jesus asked a question of those standing around criticizing him. He says, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declares, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. The crowd's delighted because he's calling out the scribes on something they taught. And Jesus here lets loose on those teachers. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats of the synagogues and places of honor as banquets. They devour widows' houses whole and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. These teachers are arrogant. They think they know everything about God's law. And they always follow it to the letter. They don't show mercy even to the widows. Now this is the 13th time in Mark that Jesus finds himself in opposition to them. And almost always, he finds himself in opposition to them because he's showing mercy to someone. Jesus, why are you eating with the publicans and sinners? Why why are you debasing yourself? Why don't you come eat with the holy people like us? Jesus, why would you heal a man on the Sabbath? That's not what God made that day for. It's a day of rest. And then Jesus goes and positions himself to be able to see everyone coming in and out, giving their offerings. And as he's watching, the rich toss in large sums of money. He sees a widow come by and put in two small coins. And he gives that famous saying, Truly I tell you, the poor widow put in more than all of those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything, everything she had, all she had to live on. Just like in Ruth, we see a widow doing the right thing. The widow's giving from her necessity and not her abundance. Ponder this this morning as Steve prepares to come give his offerings on stewardship.
during the announcements. In Hebrews, the writer reminds us that Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus got to take his offering directly to God, and not in the temple on earth, but the heavenly one that the, the earthly temple is based on. And in the presence of this Father, his sacrifice had been offered once to bear the sins of many. The writer reminds us that unlike on this earthly temple, where the oblation has to be done every day or every year, Jesus only needed to do it once. He does not have to offer himself up again and again. It was sufficient for all time. And when Jesus comes back, it's not going to be to deal with sin again. That's already done. But when he returns, he will come to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Not from our sin, but from our mortal lives. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And in the meantime, we have to remember that sin is defeated and that we are the beloved of God, made to be a part of his family. The situation that Ruth and Naomi find themselves in is not dissimilar to the one we're in. We've been in a foreign land and felt alone in the world and need someone to come and redeem us. It has been pointed out many times over the years, Boaz and Jesus are both from Bethlehem and Judah, and they're able to redeem us. The parallels, of course, go on from there. They both reach out and give consistent help when we're far off. They both keep the law, and from both prophecy are fulfilled. There's a difference. It's that Jesus reaches out to bring us back to right relationship with God, knowing full well what we've done. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans, But God proves his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. C.S. Lewis once remarked that the difference between Christianity and the other religions and philosophy of the world was grace. That Christianity is about God's grace to us, and our ability to share that same grace with others. It's that grace that we see Boaz modeled when he's forced to. And his descendant Jesus much more so, and didn't need someone to shame him into it. And that's why we're here today, because Jesus, seeing our need, came to be our Redeemer. Share that good news with your friends and your family and your neighbors. Amen.